It has been an inspiring week for me, uh, visiting with old companions on the intimate way and meeting new ones. And of course, this community here, Great Vow, you're all always an inspiration to me. I have a new book coming out from Shambhala Publications in July. My working title was The Intimate Way. It's a reflection on the arc of the spiritual life, opportunities, traps, those dead ends, and those graces along the way. I more or less follow the, the structure of the ox herding pictures, but it meanders, kind of like I do, quite a bit from that ancient map, although always coming back to its deep inspirations. The publisher has informed me the title is going to be The Intimate Way of Zen, Effort, Surrender, and Awakening on the Spiritual Journey. As I finished the manuscript, it felt it lacked something, a coda of some sort, a summary. And, and I thought, is it epitome or epitome? That wonderful little, little ending. Whatever, I was inspired by the practice in much of ancient Buddhist literature to have a prose text followed by a verse summation. After all, the heart's journey is rarely exposed simply through prose. And for this coda, I chose a story that I had first stumbled on in my youth as part of a collection of spiritual advice by Simon's Roof, Journeys on the Razor's Edge. It was published in 1960. I once tried to track him down. The book is most concerned with Ramakrishna and his followers and Ramana Maharshi. Although Roof himself may or may not have been a theosophist, he was possibly, although possibly not, associated with the Alice Bailey work. It appears he died in 2008. He wrote this one book. Most of it was composed of traditional spiritual anecdotes uh, from the great subcontinent, largely but not exclusively from the Hindu tradition. Several of the stories inspired me. One in particular captured my imagination when I read it in my late teens. I never forgot it. A few, a few years ago, I stumbled again on a copy of the book, reread the story. My memory and the text sort of overlapped. <laughs> a lot of what I remembered had more to do with my own journey than Mr. Roof's as perhaps such things should. I'm not sure, maybe a decade ago, I decided to write it down in my own words, out of my own experiences, allowing it to fill in the outline Simon's Roof provided. I've written, rewritten it maybe a half dozen times, and as it's now incorporated as the conclusion of The Intimate Way of Zen, I suspect it probably is my final written version. So, the story with a bit of its own introduction in the book. I hope you find it useful.
There's an old saying about politics. You run for office with poetry, but you must govern with prose. As the spiritual way opens for us, we discover our lives must incorporate both prose and poetry. There are the ordinary tasks of life, work, relationships, maybe a romantic partnership or marriage, sometimes children. There is the ticking of the clock, of course. That certainly can feel like prose. But as we open our eyes and hearts, we discover something. Actually, it's all poetry. Even the proof of our lives is poetry. In fact, it turns out the universe is writing stories and songs, actually whole symphonies. And there we are, you and me. We, in fact, live and breathe and take our being in stories. Like the turtles in that old story itself. It's stories all the way down. And so, to recap the song and the prose and poetry, to bring it all together. Once upon a time, long ago and far away, there was a burglar. She was quick-witted and nimble-footed, so she was successful in her chosen trade. However, as sometimes happens when one is good at something, she kept pushing the envelope. And with that came the disaster. She was discovered trying to break into a rich merchant's home. She fled without anyone catching a glimpse of her face. However, as a great cry of thief rang out, pretty much the whole village was soon in hot pursuit. Fortunately for her, she was just far enough ahead of the crowd that when she saw a cave opening between the road and the creek, she had time to throw herself into the water, roll in the mud, and then climb back up to the cave. There she sat, settling into a traditional meditation posture in front of the cave. It looked exactly as if she were simply one of the many mendicants, monastics, mad people, or others who took to the road on the great spiritual quest. When the crowd arrived in front of the cave and the convincing-looking monastic, their leader saw her and said, Oh, holy one, did you see the thief we were chasing? The burglar simply ignored the question and continued sitting as if she were meditating. One of the villagers said to their leader, can't you see she's meditating? We could earn some very bad karma if we disturb her. And then another said, let's wait. When she's ready, she'll speak. There was muttering of agreement and the leader understood one leads by ordering people to do what they want to do. So they all sat on the ground in front of the thief and waited. While the burglar sat there pretending to meditate, she desperately wondered when they were going to move on. Instead, 
more and more villagers gathered. Some remained standing. Most sat down. A few even began to meditate themselves. She had this terrible feeling as if she were trapped at the bottom of a dry well. After about two hours, vastly longer than the burglar ever thought she could hold still, she pretended to awaken from her meditative trance. Slowly opening her eyes, she looked out at what was now about 50 people, all of them quietly waiting. She cleared her throat <clears throat> and spoke softly, but with enough volume to be heard by everyone there. Why are you looking for some poor thief, dear ones? Wouldn't it be vastly better to search your own true nature? After all, who isn't stealing their lives by ignoring the great question of life and death? With this, the villagers were overcome, some with grief at their wasted lives, others at the call to something more important than perhaps they had ever considered before. A few ran back to the village to, get, to gather flowers to give her. Others went home and got some food as an offering, including rare treats. Presented with the flowers and food, the burglar ate, trying not to gobble or look greedy, then asking herself what a wise person would do in a similar situation. She asked that the majority of the food be distributed among those present, specifying that the poorest get enough and particularly some of the best delicacies. She also handed out the flowers to everyone. People felt graced. Finally, the rich merchant himself stepped forward and implored the wise nun that she remain here and grace their village with her wisdom. The burglar thought to herself, well, well, I'm good at my trade as a thief. It is hard work and it is too dangerous. This holy nun gig could be an easy way to make a living. As a thief, she thought she could easily steal what she needed just by pretending to be holy. So she said, I will stay with you, but only for a brief time. The villagers were ecstatic. They brought her blankets and candles, and someone even thought to bring her a down-filled pillow. Life was comfortable beyond what she had ever experienced. The price was that she had to pretend to meditate for hours every day, and then in the early evening to answer questions the villagers would bring to her. Answering questions turned out not to be that difficult. It seemed she knew what a good and generous heart would do, or as she thought of it, what a sucker might do. <laughs> not a lot difference, uh, she was pretty sure. Pretending to meditate, however, was harder. She knew people were watching, so she really had to hold still. 
Life paraded on the road. Merchants, monastics, families, and children. Once an ox led by a boy with a rope held in a loop through its nose trotted by. The pair paused and looked at her. Their eyes, both boy and ox, were dark pools, then moved on without saying a word. Time passed. Days turned to weeks, weeks to months. The food was good. The blankets were warm. And oh my, that pillow. But the burglar's meditating continued to be a terrible ordeal. She experimented with her posture, trying to find a position that wasn't painful. She began to sit on that pillow and gradually became comfortable sitting cross-legged. Over time, her knees began to drop and then touch the ground. But then there was her mind. She fantasized about everything that had happened in her life how she was raised, the poverty, the violence, the gift of learning to read at the local temple, and the reading of books. There weren't many, but she read them over and over. Then there was her trade, figuring out how to steal without getting caught, experiencing what happened early on when she was caught. The moments of joy and the long times of boredom and the intermittent flashes of terror. She also fantasized about the future, about what new treats the villagers might bring, about what she would do when she tired of this and returned to the road and a life of burglaries. But as she passed in her imagination from the past to the future, increasingly she noticed something else. At first, it was like a flashing silence, just for a moment. Gradually, it grew larger in her consciousness. After a while, as those weeks passed into those months, that space, that quiet, that just being present, became a large part of her holding still, pretending to meditate. Something was now different. She began seeing the villagers in a new light. And even the words that came out of her mouth now landed in her own ears in a new way. She gradually came to know the villagers, their sorrows, how they could be so petty and even sometimes cruel, the various intrigues in their lives, their loves as they arose and sometimes fell apart. Other times deepened. Their many generosities, sometimes unconscious, sometimes grand and even costly. Gradually, she began to love them. And increasingly self-aware, she began to see how her own life was just like theirs. She knew they were different people, and yet somehow, mysteriously, they were also one. Increasingly, as she spoke, everything she shared was based in that mystery, that they were different and that they were more closely connected than the finest woven fabric. Then, 
a teenager appeared. He approached her one evening, made bows, and said he had been wandering looking for a teacher. And he had begun to hear of this amazing nun who spoke wisely and, more important, modeled the great gift of silent meditation. He declared he wanted to learn her wisdom. Not knowing what to do, she ignored him. He took a place in the dirt below her as she began to pretend to meditate. He sat quietly. The next day, she told him to go. She wasn't interested in having disciples. But he continued to sit with her at a respectful distance. She knew she had to pretend to be generous, so she made sure he was fed. And before long, the villagers made sure he had blankets and even a pillow of his own. He seemed much less interested in them than she was. What he seemed to love was to sit quietly. She asked him, what are you doing while meditating? He said he did what he was taught when he first decided to walk the spiritual path. He counted his breath, putting a one on his inhalation and, and then exhaled and then put a two on the next inhalation and continuing until 10. After which he repeated the process. She said nothing. Then she tried it for herself and discovered it helped with her concentration but it also tended to obscure the quiet place that seemed increasingly interesting to her. So, a few days, days later, she told him that he might just try sitting quietly, not trying to think, not trying not to think. And he did. She began to wonder if it was time to escape. The problem was that there were villagers around pretty much all the time, and the boy, well, he was there all the time. So the burglar was stuck. Over time, the burglar grew quieter. She witnessed the day as it began. She witnessed the day as it passed. She witnessed the evening as it arose. Her last moment before sleep was noticing, witnessing, being present. And her words almost always came from that place, the place where she saw she and they were all the same. Increasingly, she talked about the silence, about what she found and what they might find. One day, the boy came to her and said that when he took a walk down by the creek, a crow called out, and in that moment, he realized the crow, the creek, the trees, he himself, and all things were joined so closely that the right word for what that was true and present was simply one. He then added, embarrassed, how he knew even that one seemed a bit too much. She wasn't sure what to say, so she simply smiled at him, put her hands together, and made a small bow. 
They continued together in this way as the months turned into years. She wasn't sure when it happened for herself. In fact, she never had that big thing like her disciple. What she did have was a gradual growing into peace and joy and gratitude for it all. In that parade of humanity, at some point, another ox trotted by, this time without an attendant. It ignored her and just continued on its way. The image of it swishing its tail as it trotted down the road stuck in her heart. Eventually, her fame as a wise counselor and teacher of the ways of the heart spread across the country. She was attended to faithfully by her disciple, who was increasingly seen as a wise teacher himself. A small community of monks and nuns gathered around her, and within the village, others seemed to become wise as well. One year, she fell ill, but that seemed okay. Her disciples tended to her, and that was okay. The villagers came to ask her last questions, and that was okay. The world, as terrible as it was, was also something wonderful, something amazing. And when she died, her senior disciple, now a wise and respected counselor, oversaw the burning of her corpse. He installed her ashes under some rocks out beyond the small monastery of nuns and monks that had grown over the years. The community elected him to succeed their founding teacher. Always before he lectured on the mysteries of the way, he would thank the good gods that he had been given such a wonderful guide on the mysteries of life and death. The teacher who stole his delusions and in doing so, opened his heart. Mystery piled upon mystery, the intimate way. I hear sometimes there's a conversation. If anybody has a thought to share, a comment, a question, I'll try to field it. And silence. I hear is a good thing too. Oh, the hard question. <laughs> no, this is this is an easy one. So this is your path. What, can you elaborate a little bit? Can you tell us how you've been lying all this time and purporting to be stealing? And I'm curious. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it turns out it's the human way. Uh, you know, when I, when I first began, I mean, where's the first begin, you know, uh, when we're, we're born? Um, um, when when the, uh, the question, the burning question began to take a form for me, the question was, is God real? I was raised in a fundamentalist uh, Christian uh, 
um, family, um, although my father um, was sort of uh, the Greek chorus with a kind of a, he was very fond of the 19th century orator, Colonel Robert Ingersoll, who loved pointing out the inconsistencies and contradictions of the Bible. So I did have that there as well, the rationalist part. Yeah. Um, but but for me for me the way was you know was a question you know, you know is God real and 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 I had no idea what to do with that you know um, um, it it uh, um, it somewhere along the line I realized I was asking something about something other than whether there was a, a, a parody of the Abrahamic divinity uh, up in heaven making uh, judgments and inter, you know, interfering in the flow of things uh, at whim. Um, but rather, I was asking something about the nature of reality. And, and for me, um, that threw me into the quest. And eventually, uh, lots of dead ends on the way, uh, lots of foolishness. And there's where my, my thieving nature uh, uh, came came in. Uh, um, where could I take something that was useful? And and I and I would I would uh, I I looked at Vedanta thanks to uh, um, Aldous Huxley and Christopher Isherwood and all those British expats, which um, I was a, a reading child, and um, it didn't, actually actually in the in the late nineteen sixties I went to the Vedanta Society Center in Berkeley, California, and um, um, they, the Swami had a very nicely cut uh, um, saffron uh, robe, and, and they had pews. And, and I couldn't deal with the pews. <laughs> uh, um, and, and so I missed a really great opportunity uh, uh, because of my thieving nature. Uh, um, I tried to take something from it, and, uh, um, but I wasn't sure what it was. And, Things happened. Um, this was the late 1960s in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I will leave that part to uh, reasoned speculation. Um, at some point, I did decide the psychedelics probably would not save the world, um, um, although I gather there are some friends now who are wondering again with that question, um, maybe with a little more sophisticated approach. Uh, but for me, um, um, if I was going to deal wisdom, uh, it seemed I should go to somebody who walked the path for a long time. And my first, uh, uh, the first teacher in my imagination was Shunru Suzuki, uh, who um, for me was somebody that I would go and hear talks from. And he was a very small figure, very far away, speaking what people told me was English. Uh, uh, but I was, began sitting in the Berkeley Zendo, uh, um, as it was called in those days, and, and, and it was led by a, a, a guy named Mel Weitzman. And, but he wasn't a priest, so I knew he wasn't a teacher. Uh, and, and I think that was the first time as I began, I spent about a year in the Berkeley Zendo, and somewhere along the line I w noticed him offering incense at the, you know, at the beginning. And, and then I realized 
there was something, he did it different than I would because I was all over the place. And he was somehow, the word present seemed to be, be there. And I wondered how I could steal that. You know, what would that look like? And things happened, you know, um, um, monasteries and uh, um, um, teachers and uh, a long and winding road uh, ended up in those high pulpits and uh, in New England and old New England and eventually here. Um, along the way, I kept finding that uh, um, I thought I was stealing something, but people were giving it away. You know, this, uh, one of my teachers uh, wrote a book and they used the title. Um, um, again, you know, you, you come up with a title. Her title was Zen is Eternal Life. Um, the publisher said, eh, how about selling water by the river? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, I bought a lot of that water. I stole a bunch of that water and gradually, gradually, uh, it turns out it's all a gift. It turns out God is something, is a way of seeing the world. It's a way of being. Um, a great gift that's terrible and frightening and holy. That's what I got. Thank you. You're, you're also famous for your monkey mind. <laughs> yes. Uh, easily distracted. Uh, uh, uh. Can you elaborate a little bit on the, the shame of your monkey mind? Well, the shame of the monkey mind. Fame, fame. Oh, fame of the monkey fame. mind. <laughs> they're, they're not disconnected. Uh, um, um, when I, I uh, um, in my checkered life, I, I have become, I became a Unitarian minister. And when I was in, uh, in my in an in a parish internship in my while I was still in in in, in seminary, um, I was down at the First Unitarian Church of San Jose. I'm standing in the office, and the 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 uh, church secretary comes in and says, "You have a column due uh, in two hours, and um, oh by the way, what are we going to call your column?" And and I. Uh, um, the only thing I could think of was monkey mind because I'm very intimate with that. And, and um, it became the name of my, my church newsletter column. And then I carried that forward uh, through the years as a parish minister. Many years after that, I, uh, um, 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 I had my one and only uh, sabbatical. Uh, and, and as I was preparing for it, the, um, some, some smart person said, uh, it's good to keep in touch with the people who are paying for your sabbatical. And, and somebody else said, well, you know, there's this, there, blogs are becoming a thing and blogs had become enough of a thing that, that you could uh, um, get a free download and that somebody even I could navigate through. So I started a blog posting um, um, and I used monkey mind. And uh, it just, I don't know why, it just managed to keep going. So it's uh, actually on the 5th of, of 
September, whatever that is, three weeks ago, it just crossed 17 years. And, and um, it's host, it moved from myself thing to one of those religious portals called Petheos, um, um, which I, I, I have ambivalent feelings that you go to it and it's covered with advertising. On the other hand, I get paid enough to take my spouse to dinner once a month. <laughs> and sometimes I do so well that alcohol can be involved. Uh, 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 so that's, that's monkey mind. Speaking of, of being a thief, could you tell the story about the shingles? Oh, the sh oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, um, this this is my shady religious career. Uh, um, um, I was raised a fundamentalist uh, Christian, and and that meant that baptism happened with the at the age of reason, which somehow in my community was twelve, and and. At that point, so I, you know, I was a good soldier. I did the, you know, said yes, I would love to be baptized, please, please. And as we were preparing for it, my real obsession was that I had discovered, my friends and I had discovered that if you take a wooden shingle and you just cut it a little bit, it's aerodynamic. And, and, um, and in those days, tires had inner tubes, which are these you know, stretchy rubber. And you could cut it up and you could nail large pieces of the inner, inner tube rubber, rubber and like a giant slingshot. And, and you could get those, I, we could get those shingles almost out of sight. It was really great. But, but our religion was, was, was um, a subset of fundamentalism called perfectionists. <laughs> And once you're baptized, you're not capable of sinning again. So this was a dilemma. Because um, 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 the only way we could get the shingles was from const real construction sites. And, and so the solution was to, um, um, for my friends and I, to go to three different construction sites and steal as many um, um, shingles as we could before we were baptized. <laughs> um, there was in our gathering a discussion about that kind of fundamentalist kind of baptism, which was kind of the um, um, full immersion. But we we did it. We did one for each God, you know. So you know, a full dunk for the Father, a full dunk for the Son, and a full dunk for the Holy Spirit. I think we said Holy Ghost. Um, and I'm stuck, I guess. Uh, uh, um, one, of, one of the teachers mentioned that he found for him, Buddhism has been one constant clarification of his childhood Christianity. And, and, and I get it, you know, I have that, you know, um, I, I, my major line about that time was I learned to read from a big illustrated King James version of the Bible resting on my grandmother's lap and uh, the associations I have for that and the, and eventually not only learning to read um, um, but but the stories uh, you know are are 
engraved on me. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes I'm grateful for them. trying to steal something and being given a gift. I'm curious, you've been practicing all these decades, and I'm wondering now, like what's the cutting edge in your practice that you're grappling with or coming up against these days? Well, the, what I'm, what I'm um, grappling with, wrestling with, being wrestled to the ground with is letting go. Um, um, it's time to start consolidating and surrendering and um, and I'm not doing it very well uh, uh, but but uh, but it's a it is a, a living and breathing thing for me yeah. a practice you might all want to think about trying before you need to do it well you know I was hoping you would tell me that uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, what I've, I think for me is kind of a two or three pronged process. The, the first thing is noticing that I'm, when I'm not doing it. So for instance, I'm, uh, um, um, I've just changed uh, doctors because we have moved in with Jan's mom and uh, she's 96 and, and she needs, uh, um, uh, in order to be independent, she needs somebody around and doesn't need a lot of attention, but she needs, you know, if, if I don't cook, I'm the cook in the family. If, uh, if I don't cook, she eats cookies. Um, and which is cool, but, but, <laughs> but um, the people around her want her to eat a little better than that. And so we do that. Um, um, the process of changing uh, uh, locations, because we lived in Long Beach and, and this is in, which is on the coast of LA and, and she lives in Tahunga, which is as the exact opposite part of, uh, of the metro uh, in, in nestled at the very foot of the San Gabriel Mountains. Um, so it, we needed to change doctors. And when I got to the doctor, the new doctor and we have this like 23 minute you know get to know you and i discovered i i desperately needed for him to know i write books <laughs> wasted seven minutes out of the, the the 23 and fortunately that allowed me to notice yeah and so what's that you know you know i'm you know, I mean, and I know, you know, I mean, I begin to look, you know, it's my part of my identity, who I am, how I see myself in the world, and um, uh, how do I not be owned by it? Yeah. And how do I, how do I let go of my stories about who I am um, while I'm being, while I'm doing it, you know, and, and, you know, it's a dance, it's a, you know, the truth is we're all, we are what we do, and we're much bigger than that. You know, so for me, the discovery is often letting go of something that is there for a moment, like the rest of the moments that make me, make us. Um, 
so that's one, and I've got others. You know, that, that apparently growing old gives you lots of opportunities to notice things that um, were once and are no more, or are tottering at the edge of, of no more. Uh, turns out we can do it at any time in our lives, though. And again, I'm glad I had a little practice coming into this phase of my life. And uh, um, that's what I understand about letting go. Last advice you have to give them? Have fun. <laughs> Care. What's the what's that wonderful? Is it Mary um, uh, Oliver? You know, uh, um, you know when you know in this life, you know, you hold it, hold the things of your life, you know, to your to your to your very heart, as if you you know it's the most important thing in the world. And then when you need to let go, 